The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Well, let me invite you now to open your copy of the scriptures with me to the book of Revelation, Revelation and chapter 12. Uh, We have been in this Advent season of uh, the year 2020 looking at the book of Revelation for our sermon series with the theme, Christ Triumphant, Christmas in the book of Revelation. And it has been a joy and a delight. And let me give you advance warning. I'm really excited about uh, Revelation chapter 12. Really excited. So I hope you will share in that excitement with me and follow with me into the scriptures to Revelation chapter 12. Now, as you're going there, let's just remember the fact that stories are powerful entities. Stories are powerful. I don't know if you've seen this, but there's a, a video that's circulating on Facebook, and I've, I've seen it somewhere else, and uh, it's in a foreign language. It's a commercial for, I think, Germany. I have no idea what the commercial is about, what it's selling in terms of a product, but I do know that it tells a story of an older gentleman who weight trains over the course of a couple seasons, and you see him going through his life and daily picking up a kettlebell, lifting it up, and you think, what in the world is this about? Well, at the end, it shows a a video of him lifting up his granddaughter to put a star on top of the Christmas tree, and the story makes sense at that time. Again, it's in German. I have no idea what the commercial is for, but the story is powerful, and stories are powerful. Stories are especially powerful when they lead us into the greatest story ever told, which is the story and narrative of redemption through Jesus Christ in the Bible. We love stories that point us to the greatest story. That's why books, the book series like the Chronicles of Narnia is so famous. I don't know if you have read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the first book in the series of seven, or perhaps even seen the movies. These are stories that have the greatest story behind them with the epic characters and the epic saga of drama that is pointing towards redemption, towards a Christ-like figure who redeems and brings transformation. We love stories that point us to the greatest story. And again, that's because stories are powerful. And we think of them, and we often use this word of a myth. We think of myths, and when we think of myths, we think of stories that are not true or perhaps maybe based in some semblance of fact but are largely made up, right? We think about the Chronicles of Narnia, the Lord of the Rings, you know, Star Wars, if you're into those type of things. But some people are often like, I'm not into those things at all. In fact, I don't want anything to do with those things. But myths pervade All of our culture, there are American folklore, myths, tall tales, Johnny Appleseed, Paul Bunyan, Davy Crockett, right? These things are myths, but a myth is not just something that is true or not true because the primary function of a myth is to be a formative story. A myth creates a sense which we view the world through. A myth intends to shape the way we view the world. Listen to what C.S. Lewis called the Gospel of Jesus Christ. This is C.S. Lewis, the author of the Chronicles of Narnia. He says this, The story of Christ is simply this. It is a true myth. A myth working on us the same way as others, but with this tremendous difference that the Gospel of Jesus really 
happened. C.S. Lewis calls the gospel the true myth, the greatest story. And this morning in Revelation 12, we enter into that overview of the greatest story ever told. So, let's prepare to hear the Word of God by praying together. O Lord, with Your Word open, Lord, we anticipate the ways in which You will speak to us this morning in the power of the Scriptures. Lord, we, we delight in the Word. We say with King David, Oh, how we love Your law. And so we pray, Lord, this morning that You would come in the power of Your Spirit to illuminate our minds, to give understanding, to illuminate our eyes, to help us to see, and our ears to receive and hear the things which You would speak to us. And Lord, transform us by Your Word this morning, we pray. Fix our eyes upon the Lord Jesus and fill our hearts with love for Him. We pray in His name. Amen. And now, let's hear the Word of God from Revelation chapter 12 under the heading, The Woman and the Dragon. This is the Word of God. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to His throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Amen. 
the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the Word of God abides forever. This is a chapter that, that should make you love the Bible so much, because this is the greatest story ever told. Revelation 12 is often said to be the centerpiece of the book of Revelation, not just numerically in one sense of a center chapter, but rather the epicenter of the narrative that the whole book of Revelation is telling. It gives the overarching storyline of the whole Bible, the unfolding drama of redemption. The world which God has made is the world that has been corrupted by man's sin. And God sends a Savior into this fallen world both to remove the curse of man's sin and usher in the new creation. I'm calling Revelation chapter 12, Genesis 3.15, in technicolor. You remember Genesis 3.15? The Lessons and Carol service begins with a reading from the book of Genesis all the way back in the garden when God, after man's rebellion, curses the serpent in Genesis 3.15, saying that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, even though the serpent will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. He will crush your head. You will bruise his heel, is what Genesis 3.15 says. And in that verse, all the way back, in the book of Genesis, you have the prophecy of the forecoming, the forthcoming of the Lord Jesus to overthrow the kingdom of Satan. And this, Revelation 12, is that verse of Genesis 3.15, but in technicolor. Now, uh, technicolor has been out for a long, long time, but if you remember, maybe you don't remember, I certainly don't remember, I wasn't born, but in 1939, The Wizard of Oz came out, and it was in color! Right? There's that epic transformation that happens as Dorothy enters Oz, and, and everything is different, right? It's, it's amazing, and, and audiences still today are amazed at this invention. I don't think that we even consider it anymore. We take advantage of the fact that we see things in color in television or movies, and now we're at 4K and all the rest. But Revelation 12 is the technicolor 4K ultra high definition version of Genesis 3.15. And to John, the Spirit of God says, come up here and see this. Take a look at this. Fix your eyes on this epic story. Because the Bible is an epic story. And you and I are so often tempted to be limited and think Christianity is this very, you know, simple, tame thing of nice people gathering on Sunday to sing about Jesus, and that's all well and good. But there's a bigger story behind all of that. And John says, take a look at it. So let's see it together. This happens in three scenes. The first scene is in verses 1 to 6. Let's look at the first scene of this great story. In verses 1 to 6, you have like a wide-angle view of the action. You have a summary, arguably, of the entire Bible here in these six verses. The whole story of the Bible plays out here. And John explains by way of symbols and signs how Genesis 3.15 happens in living color. Let's look at the characters. First of all, in verse 1, a great sign in heaven, a woman. 
And look at her description. She is clothed with the sun, with the moon at her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. So who is she? Who is this woman? Well, in verse 2, we also see that she is pregnant. And then eventually, verse 6, gives birth to a male child who is to rule the nations. And, and that's pretty clear, isn't it? That's fairly clear imagery. We know that this is speaking about the coming of Christ into the world. But that begs the question then that many people have asked throughout history, is, is the woman of Revelation 12 representative of Mary? Is the Virgin Mary the woman of Revelation 12? If you were part of the church tradition of Rome, your answer would be yes, absolutely. But it would seem that the better answer would be that the sign of the woman surely includes Mary, but is not exclusively the Virgin Mary. Why not? Because she is clothed with the sun, with the moon at her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head, which is a perfect match to the vision of Joseph in Genesis 37. The vision of Joseph in Genesis 37, in which Jacob is the sun, Rachel is the moon, and the 12 sons are the stars. The woman here in Revelation 12 is a representative picture of Israel, the people of God, God's covenant people. And as the woman gives birth in verse 6, it's representative of the fact that the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, would come from the lineage of Israel, would come forth from Israel to be a ruler, in verse 6, ruling the nations with a rod of iron, which is a direct quote from Psalm 2, verse 9. But this woman is not merely a symbol of Old Testament Israel, she maintains to be the consistent character in Revelation 12, even after the Son is born. As she is greatly opposed by her enemy, protected by God and nourished by God for 1,260 days. Now we're going to come back to that number, so just pause yourself on wondering what that number is. But for now, notice that the sign of the woman in the fullness of the sign is representative of the faithful people of God, both in Old and New Testaments, Israel and the church. The sign of the woman represents the church of God, the unified people of God, from whom and for whom the Savior has come to be King and Redeemer. And she is opposed. Look at her enemy in verse 3. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon. He's dreadfully imposing with seven heads, ten horns, seven diadems upon his heads. The slithering serpent of Genesis 3 is now here a great and fiery dragon. And there's no question about who he is. Because later on, verse 9 will tell us that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, the evil one, the enemy of the people of God who from the very beginning deceived our first parents and plunged the world into sin and misery. His red color depicts his murderous character. The seven heads symbolize that there are multiple manifestations of his evil kingdom throughout history. Oftentimes in Scripture, when you read about multiple-headed beasts, they are representative of earthly nations that wage against Israel. And here, Satan is depicted as having a multiplicity of heads so as to have multiple kingdoms throughout world history, waging war against the people of God in an earthly sense, but here represented in a spiritual sense. 
His ten horns show the strength of his wicked power. Horns in the Bible represent strength and power. And the seven diadems stand for a claim to royalty. Now, do you remember when the Lord Jesus went into the wilderness after his baptism there to be tempted by Satan? And one of the temptations that Satan offered to the Lord Jesus was to remove him from his trials and give him the kingdoms of all the world if he would but bow down and worship Satan. Satan's presumption has always been to gather worship for himself. His wicked intention has always been to present himself with glory, but it is a false glory, a presumption of honor, an arrogated authority in which he is no great king. This will be really important later on when we look in chapter 19 and see the crown that is on the head of the Lord Jesus. But for now, see that Satan's crown represents a false claim of authority. But notice what verse 4 says about the dragon. Two things. First of all, what may be a reference to Satan's original fall, which draws a great deal of interest, but it's really the second thing that's the focus here in this chapter. The dragon waits to devour the woman's child. And the child born here is the promised seed of the woman come to crush the head of the serpent. Again, calling back Genesis 3.15. And the serpent knows who his mortal enemy is and he intends to devour this child. That gives another layer to the birth narrative of Jesus, doesn't it? As Jesus comes into the world, it is Satan's intent to devour the child, just as it was Herod's intent to eliminate this so-called king of the Jews. And so wipe out all the children of Judah, two years and younger, male children, which is why Jesus, uh, with his parents, flees to Egypt. Do you remember King Herod wanted the Magi to report the child's location in order to eradicate the threat of his kingdom? And throughout Jesus' entire earthly ministry, it is the intent of Satan to keep the Lord Jesus from fulfilling his purposes because Christ has come into the world to tread upon the head of of Satan. Just as Genesis 3.15 says. Now, look at how much is packed into verse 5. Look at with me in verse 5. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Now, not only is the entire narrative of the birth of Jesus packed into that verse, but Jesus' entire earthly ministry is there just in that one verse too. Jumps right to the ascension. He was caught up to God and to His throne. John skips all the other details of Jesus' life and ministry and gets right to the point that for as much as the serpent wants to devour Christ, He is victorious. Christ is victorious and exalted and His kingdom is that which He reigns over His enemy. Christ reigns victorious over His enemy. And that is the point of the book of Revelation, not just here in chapter 12, but the entire thing. To a first century church under the weight of persecution and suffering, and to the church in every age, our age as well, facing hostility and strife, agonizing under the weight of life in a fallen world that the devil terrorizes, the Bible says Jesus Christ is King. Jesus Christ reigns over all even his most hostile enemy, in the midst of it all. And the kingdom of God has begun through his ascension. 
And that kingdom is one which will be consummated on the day of His glorious appearing. But we're not there yet. And the church that John is writing to in the first century, they weren't there yet. We're not there yet. We are a church in the in-between time. A church that needs courage and encouragement in the face of struggle and strife. Courage to know that our Savior reigns over and against His enemy. That's the, the grand epic story of the Bible. But then, there's another scene. A second scene that, if you like, the camera shifts up and you get the perspective of heaven in verses 7-12. through 12, Where the previous section was really focusing on how the narrative plays out on earth. Verse 7 says, Now war arose in heaven. And what we have here is a description of the same great cosmic conflict, but from a heavenly perspective. Listen to the way John describes it. Again, verse 7, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan and deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Now at first glance, again, this, this might appear to be suggestive of some of the details for how Satan becomes Satan in the first place. Uh, his fall from heaven in one sense, the original rebellion. And there are lots of questions about that. And actually, most of the opinions about that reality don't actually come from the Bible. They come from uh, other you know, cultural products, Dante's Inferno, uh, John Milton's Paradise Lost, these types of things. But what this is actually talking about is John is describing the way in which since Jesus' resurrection and ascension to heaven's throne, the tides have turned in this great cosmic battle between darkness and light and good and evil since the resurrection. So to use a historical picture here, in the course of World War II, D-Day is remembered as the decisive blow of the Allied forces in their pursuit to liberate Western Europe from Nazi Germany. And the tides turn on D-Day, but Germany's unconditional surrender doesn't come until VE Day, almost an entire year later, in May of 1945. Decisive victory is secured on D-Day, but absolute victory doesn't come until later. And that's what the Bible is saying about the cosmic struggle against the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. In Jesus' death and resurrection, the victory is assured. As John says in verse 8, there was no longer any place for Satan in heaven. And what that seems to suggest is that there are a number of occasions in the Old Testament where we read about Satan appearing in the throne room of God. Most notably, at the very beginning of the book of Job, but there's also a scene in Zechariah chapter 3 where Satan is pictured as appearing in heaven. How that all works out, I don't know and don't understand, but the Bible speaks of Satan appearing in heaven. But now, Satan is cast down. Now we see he has been cast out. And notice that it doesn't say that Michael is the one that throws Satan down. Michael is a character in the angelic army, to be sure. 
But the glory of victory doesn't belong to an angel. The glory of victory belongs to the child, the seed of the woman, the ascended Christ, now exalted. Listen to the way Jesus explains this in John chapter 12, verse 31. Jesus said in His earthly ministry, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world, which is the way Jesus describes Satan, now will the ruler of this world be cast out when I am lifted up and will draw all people to Myself. So, when the Virgin Mary bore a son and called Him Jesus, the kingdom of darkness begins to crumble. When Christ is in the wilderness and answered all of the devil's assaults and temptations with His refusal to put the Lord God to the test, Satan's rule and authority are being undermined. And when at last Jesus Christ declares victory at the cross, saying, it is finished, the dominion of Satan falls. Satan is cast down. And that means what verse 10 says. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now, because of this decisive victory of the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 10 says, the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. The glory of God's kingdom through His Messiah, after the work of Christ's people will be drawn in. Salvation flows out from Jesus. He is triumphant and Satan is cast down through the decisive victory of Christ. There is no longer any question of the outcome of this war. But remember, just like in World War II, a decisive victory can be won before the unconditional surrender is achieved. And the same is true in this cosmic warfare, or we should say, because it is true in this cosmic warfare, we see it paralleled in history. And just like Hitler retreated into the confines of his bunker, waging reckless warfare, uncoordinated air assaults, even against the better judgment of his rank of generals, Satan continues to wage war and fury against the kingdom of God, even though he is a decisively defeated enemy. And the point is, in Revelation 12, he cannot defeat the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus has won. He has failed to devour the child. And Satan has been conquered. And so because he cannot have victory over Christ, Satan then turns his attention to the Lord's people. He cannot defeat Jesus, and so he turns his attention to the church. And that's what the rest of the chapter is describing. A third scene, down from heaven back on the earth, where there is strife and warfare between the dragon and the woman again. And so the rest of the chapter pictures the church under the divine protection of God, using imagery like from the book of Exodus, where the church is delivered on eagle's wings to the wilderness, where the woman is protected even against the furious attacks of the serpent, where there she is nourished for a particular time, a time that is represented in verse 14, a time and times and time and a half, which is the same amount of time that he refers to in verse 6. 1,260 days, 42 months, or three and a half years. Don't be confused over the math. John uses these various numerical descriptions to speak about the same reality. 
He refers to the age of the church on earth after the resurrection of Jesus, but before his final coming. The age that we call the church age, the interadventual age, or the age of tribulation. This time period between Jesus' first and second coming encapsulates the church's ongoing experience of suffering and safety, temptation and trial, alienation in the wilderness, but the same location where they are nurtured and cared for by their God. From the time of Jesus' ascension to the time of his glorious return is where the church lives, where you live, and we live together. It is a time not at all representative of ease, but it is definitely a time of security. It is a time of satanic assault upon the church and a time of ultimate divine deliverance. We've said again already that Satan cannot defeat the Lord Jesus. He also cannot defeat the church. The serpent will not have victory over the woman, representative of the church of God. The church will not fail, which is why in his fury, Satan goes on to attack individual Christians, or as verse 17 calls them, the rest of her offspring. Jesus cannot be defeated by Satan. The church cannot be defeated by Satan. And so Satan turns his attacks on individuals, those born of and into the church, which is why verse 10 calls Satan the accuser, who accuses day and night. The only power that is left to Satan as a vanquished foe is his deceit and his accusation. And he's fierce with this because it says at the end of verse 12, he knows that his time is short. So in verse 13, the dragon pursues the woman to attack her. He attacks with accusations and he attacks the offspring of the woman. And here's where we get very clear in our application to our spiritual lives. Do you know what that is like? Do you know what it is like to experience being under the accusation and deceit of the enemy of your soul? To have your failures and your sins pointed out and highlighted, saying again and again and again, rubbing it in like salt in a wound, you are guilty, guilty, guilty. We experience that from Satan in this church age. And what is the response? The hope of the gospel is not that Satan is wrong. Because Satan is right, isn't he? Am I a sinner? Yes, I am. Am I guilty? Yes, I am. But the good news of the gospel isn't that you are not a sinner, but that even though you are there is a Savior. And Satan will never point you to Jesus. He will only point you inward to yourself and your own shame and guilt. He will only condemn you. He will only accuse you. But the answer to Jesus's, or the answer to Satan's accusations and deceit against you is that Jesus saves. As the saints say in verse 11, they are those 
who conquer by the blood of the Lamb. When you are assaulted in your conscience, when you are loaded up with guilt and shame as Satan points his finger on the ugly truth of our wicked hearts, here is our answer. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all of our sin. The Lamb has died and I am forgiven and Satan is defeated. None of the accusations stick to the people of God because they are covered in the blood of the Lamb. The hope of the Gospel is not that you are not a sinner, but that you are and there is a Savior who has vanquished your foe. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Christians are therefore called, at the end of verse 17, those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So, what is, what is Revelation 12 doing on, on the whole? John writes this to the church to encourage them in the days of continued and increasing hostility and persecution. And the, the message is this. Persevere. Don't quit. Press on because Christ is triumphant over His enemy. And you and I need to recognize that we are living out this story, this epic cosmic battle with slaying dragons and victorious kings is our story as Christian people. And we need to elevate our concept of the Christian faith and worldview to see this and to see that your Christian faith is not just a little element about what you do on a Sunday for a little bit of time. That's such a tame view of Christianity. You as a Christian believer need to see that you are engaged in the cosmic warfare of the King of Kings and the Kingdom of God against the Kingdom of Darkness and His vanquished foe, the devil. You're a part of that kingdom as a Christian. It's a victorious kingdom. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That is the word of a victorious conqueror saying, I build my church at the gates of hell and I will push it back. I will push back the gates of hell, open the gates of heaven to bring life and forgiveness to those who are otherwise destined to die. This forms the way we should look at the world. This cosmic conflict of Jesus' kingdom reigning amidst Satan's banished fury. You and I are called to join this kingdom. To be obedient to this king and to wage war against the devil in our lives as well as we wage war against sin in our lives. This grand drama is what Christmas is about then, isn't it? This child that has come into the world has come to reign over all his enemies and vanquish the great enemy of your soul forever. What a story. What a story. Dear friends, get a wider view. Put the story in technicolor. And be amazed. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we rejoice that you give to us the scriptures whereby you define reality for us and help us to see what is really true. We thank you for the epic drama of the redemption of our lives. And Lord, we pray, give us greater love and obedience to your Son and our Savior, the reigning King, in whose name we pray. Amen. 
Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.